Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. One of the more common strains in the kicking athlete is a quadriceps strain, in particular that of the rectus femoris. Now, most chiropractors will be quite familiar with uh, these types of injuries, but having a well-structured approach that actively involves the athlete is essential if we want our management to provide the best outcomes. For the athlete, of course, that means a quick return to activity and minimal reoccurrence. Now, I'm pleased today to be joined on the podcast by physiotherapist Rees Thomas, who presented on this very topic at the recent ACA Sports Symposium in Melbourne. To give you a bit of background on Rees, he's an APA-titled sports and exercise physiotherapist. He's co-course chair of the physiotherapy program at Victoria University and consults at a musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapy clinic in Melbourne. Having extensive experience in elite athletes and sports physiotherapy, including uh, stints at Melbourne Victory Football Club, the A-League, and the Melbourne Women's AFL um, Football Club team. Reese has developed a passion for optimizing rehabilitation and return to play for lower lung muscle injuries. And we're really lucky to have him on the podcast today. Reese, welcome to the ACA podcast. Thanks very much, uh, Anthony. It's an absolute pleasure to be uh, joining you uh, in this podcast today. So thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became particularly interested in lower limb sports injuries. Sure. Uh, So I've I've been working as a a physiotherapist now for approximately 10 years. And uh, and the vast majority of that time, um, I've been working in elite sport across uh, multiple codes. Um, And within these uh, different codes, my role has predominantly been as a rehab physiotherapist or rehab coordinator. Um, As you mentioned before, I have supplemented uh, this work uh, with some clinical work in musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapy. And across all these roles, uh, I've certainly been exposed to a high volume of uh, lower limb uh, muscle strain injuries. And uh, this has certainly led to a a curiosity about how I can uh, optimise the management of these muscle strain injuries and and also work with the high performance team to mitigate the risk of them occurring in the first place. And uh, and when it comes to specifically uh, rectus femoris or quad strain injuries, uh, this was uh, my interest sort of came from, you know, in, in the space of about two to two and a half years, uh, I was exposed to about three to four high grade proximal rec fem strain injuries, um, all from a kicking mechanism. Uh, so, uh, you know, doing my literature searching really found that there was not a lot of uh, research out there to sort of guide um, some of my management uh, approaches. So, um, Certainly, uh, I spoke to as many people as I could, but also engaged um, some some local researchers in Melbourne to uh, come up with some strategies to help uh, guide the management. Let's begin with the basics then. Let's talk a bit about anatomy. What are the things that um, a chiropractor needs to be thinking about with these sorts of injuries? Yeah, good question, Anthony. Yeah, so I think... um, you know, understanding 
the anatomy and subsequent function of the quadriceps uh, and particularly the rec fem is uh, really important if you're going to uh, address the management of these uh, injuries appropriately. So we certainly know that, you know, with the four quadricep muscles, they all extend the knee and are innervated by the femoral nerve. However, the unique aspects of the bioarticular nature of rec fem are, are certainly something you need to be um, really across. So the fact that it crosses the hip joint, it has that subsequent hip flexion action. Um, so really ensuring that you incorporate um, assessment of the hip flexion component as well as management is really important. Um, additionally, I think it's important to have a good understanding of the um, proximal origins of the uh, of the rec fem, so both of the direct and indirect heads. Um, so with respect to the direct head, uh, it arises from the anterior inferior uh, iliac spine, and it is uh, a relatively short tendon and uh, runs superficially and blends into the uh, anterior fascia of the uh, proximal third of the muscle belly and is uh, uh, unipennate in structure. However, with respect to the indirect head, uh, which only sits about one centimetre uh, away from uh, the direct head, it uh, arises from the superior acetabular ridge, okay? And it's oblique in orientation um, and ru runs along five centimetres of the length of that um, uh, acetabular uh, ridge. So uh, with that indirect tendon, we've got more of a long tendon uh, and runs deep, it's embedded within the substance of the uh, rectus femoris muscle, so in that intramuscular tendon, uh, and it is bipennate in, in structure, okay? So I guess they're probably the two key features of the proximal aspect of, of rec fem. Um, and then there's, um, you know, some unique anatomical features of rec fem that are important to understand. So uh, uh, we often refer to this muscle within a muscle whereby that, that unipennate um, muscle surrounds it in a bipennate muscle. And this can give rise to um, degloving injuries um, whereby the deeper bipennate component of the indirect head is dissociated from its superficial unipennate um, component. And probably the, the last feature, uh, without going into too much uh, detail here, Anthony, is uh, um, the rec fem is, has a high proportion of type 2 fibres, so about 65%, okay, which produce uh, explosive movements, as we know, just like the uh, long head of bicep femoris in the hamstring muscle group. Um, and, you know, that, that needs to be considered um, and, uh, with respect to rehabilitation and, uh, you know, return to those uh, explosive movement patterns or rate of force development exposure through the rehab pathway. Um, Reese, you've talked about some really interesting things there in terms of the anatomy and why maybe the quadricep may be vulnerable to injury, or at least why we need to be thinking about uh, it maybe differently for, for some from some other muscles. But how does a quadricep injury compare in terms of frequency and return to play compared to, say, for example, a hamstring or, or a calf injury? Yeah, yeah, good question. So we, we, we certainly see that, uh, you know, the four most common lower limb muscle strain injuries are hamstring, um, calf, quad and acute adductor and the hamstring, you know, across all the codes is, is certainly the most, um, uh, the highest incidence uh, prevalence. Um, uh, and, you know, the latest sort of AFL injury audit data shows that um, with respect to um, mismatches per club per season, we see approximately 25 for the hamstring muscle group, about five and a half 
uh, missed matches per club per season for the calf and uh, just over four with the quadricep muscle group. So uh, similar to the calf, but uh, yeah, the hamstrings are certainly, as you can imagine, been a, a massive priority with respect to muscle strain injury research over the years. Um, but uh, but what is interesting to see, though, is how quadricep um, incidents and, um, and severity uh, uh, may uh, differ in different settings. Um, so in elite soccer, um, it is, is clearly the second most frequent uh, injury. Um, when we look at elite academy soccer, so more youth-based uh, athletes, we see it being um, uh, more frequent than hamstring strain injuries. And, um, and, and then if we look at uh, pre-season versus in-season, we see a higher um, frequency of um, quadriceps strain injuries in the pre-season, um, more so than the hamstring muscle group. So that certainly leads on to our strategies with respect to injury prevention. Are we yes. adequately preparing uh, our athletes for um, the, the demands of, of kicking loads at the start of pre-season? What are they doing in the off-season? Are we doing any uh, rec fem loading? Are they maintaining kicking-based loads in that period of time? So, um, so I, I think that's really an opportunity to have some impact in injury prevention. Um, and then there's other sports like um, athletics um, where – uh, uh, quadriceps strain injuries are, are the second most common and, and that was um, illustrated in the 2016 Olympic Games in, in Rio. Um, so, so that's sort of that frequency and, but with respect to, um, you know, we know the hamstrings are much more frequent or common but um, the severity of injuries is probably of, of greater concern when it comes to quads. Um, so a recent 16-year follow-up study of European footballers uh, uh, that showed that quad injuries resulted in a longer return to play than hamstrings and calves. So on average, we saw about 19.5 days for the quad uh, versus 18 days for hamstrings and 17.4 days for uh, for the calf muscle group. And, uh and, you know, these numbers of 90.5 is pretty consistent with um, a recent paper from uh, British Athletics, uh, which showed about, on average, about 20.4 days um, return to play. But obviously, we need to consider uh, that time to return to play can vary significantly depending on the, the classification of the, of the injury itself. Uh, but uh, so potentially longer time to return to play, uh, but not as common as your hamstring injuries for sure. So these injuries are obviously happening in the kicking athlete and, as you said, you know, uh, at the tra uh, track and field athletes as well. But our conversation is mostly today about the kicking athlete. So take us through the biomechanics. Um, you know, does this injury happening, for example, mostly with a kicking leg, I imagine that would be the case, or, or, or is it something where the stance leg is the one that can potentially be injured? Yeah, yeah great questions uh, there, Anthony. Yeah, so firstly... Um, uh, kicking and sprinting are, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, the, by far and away the most common mechanisms of uh, rec fem injury. Um, and, you know, in, in kicking dominant sports um, like soccer, um, a recent paper showed that 54% were from a kicking mechanism and 30% were from sprinting. Um, with respect to kicking leg versus non-kicking leg, um, we see 80 about 80% of rec fem injuries uh, involve the kicking leg itself. So only a small proportion are um, the stance leg. Um, and the best way to describe that is, uh, is through the, the biomechanics of, of the kicking motion itself. Um, so what we, we do understand is 
that it is a proximal to distal uh, movement sequence whereby the, the hip uh, is the dominant uh, or prime mover for the, for the kick itself. Uh, and the knee uh, contributes only very little to the angular acceleration of the, sh of the shank. And um, uh, in addition to that, um, the, the actual orientation of the foot for different kicks um, uh, you know, requires a high amount of uh, load or effort uh, for the the muscles in the hip, so um, so you know it's certainly a hip dominant uh, maneuver, um, and then uh, with that uh, kicking leg, what we see is um, uh, a couple of sort of key phases. So that backswing to cocking phase where the rec fem will work eccentrically to contract to slow down knee flexion and hip extension or uh, as it's often sort of described as that sort of power absorption phase uh, then we have that swing phase uh, where we see a concentric action at the hip um, as the hip flexes and the knees extended it so it's more of that sort of power generation and 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 the end result is a combined hip flexion and knee extension during the leg acceleration phase to ball contact. And um, what the research shows is where injuries typically occur is that um, rapid transition between that sort of cocking phase, um, so that end point of the eccentric contraction and that rapid concentric um, contraction of the swing phase. Um, it, often athletes will report, you know, it happened on ball contact. Um, and certainly that does occur. Um, but, um, but the researchers sort of suggest that it is more that um, that transition between the, the cocking and the swing phase uh, where the injuries uh, tend to occur. Um, also important to understand that it yes that the actual support leg and the leg pelvis and upper body are also very important uh, in the biomechanics of kicking and and that you know I'll, I'll touch on uh, that sort of tension arc um, that occurs um, in the upper body trunk um, uh, when we're kicking and and how that can sort of uh, flow onto considerations for rehabilitation planning um, but uh, yeah kick, biomechanics of kicking is important to understand and uh, factor into your rehab Look, that's great information. Um, I was very interested to, and, and it makes perfect uh, perfect sense that the hip would be the main joint that generates uh, the power and the, that the knee is sort of uh, following along. I, I guess we have, as you described earlier, the att uh, upper attachment of the rec fem is it's pretty close to where the psoas sits as well, which is also another hip flexor. Mm. If you're thinking about injuries in those spaces, is it is it palpation that distinguishes between those two or what other assessments would you use to distinguish a psoas from a uh, upper rec fem? Uh, and then maybe from that, talk about some of the other uh, key tests that you might do with assessment. Yeah, yeah. Great questions, uh, Anthony. So, yeah, firstly, with any um, uh, muscle strain injury assessment, um, you know, we, we need to be systematic in our process and, and how we assess, you know, pitch side or, you know, uh, by the field versus uh, in the clinic and rooms can, can, can vary uh, or can uh, differ. But essentially, you know, understanding of the mechanism first and foremost is really important. Um, was a kicking or sprint mechanism um, certainly going to be, uh, you know, certainly can contribute to psoas or um, other hip flexor muscle um, strain injuries, but uh, we're already starting to think of uh, the rec fem. Uh, if there's a change of direction mechanism and hip and groin pain, we may be starting to consider adductor uh, muscle involvement or all those sort of psoas um, uh, muscles. Um, Certainly looking at pain on stretch, pain on contraction and pain on palpation. And as you said, the, 
palpation itself is highly sensitive and, and specific. Um, it can, so therefore quite handy in ruling in and out. Um, so being able to, uh, you know, accurately palpate that A, IIS uh, between the sartorius medially and TFL uh, laterally can really be uh, help uh, guide you. Um, secondly, I think, um, yeah, as I said, the, you know, the, the mechanism, um, the actual pain on contraction, I think, you know, for both presentations, you know, hip flexion is going to be provocative and, and weak. So maybe um, biasing the knee extension component. Um, and then also with that, you know, the stretch component, um, maybe biasing that. And then, of course, um, uh, MRI, uh, if you do have access to, to, um, to imaging, it uh, would certainly guide you from, um, you know, away from the clinical assessment. But, yes, uh, the palpation is a key feature for sure. And so what are some of the other um, specific assessments you find really useful, not only in terms of assessment in from a diagnosis point of view, but also from a, a benchmarking point of view, we're going to monitor this uh, athlete's response to care and determine when they're ready to go back to training and eventually to play. What are the sort of things that we need to be testing at the moment of injury and then perhaps retesting um, as, as they progress through? Yeah. Um, excellent question. And I think, um, you know, that you know, once you have established your diagnosis, really those uh, tests to guide, um, you know, progression through rehabilitation uh, and make decisions on return to play are, are most valuable. So, um, you know, I, I always think about, you know, range of motion, strength and, and sort of more functional tests being uh, part of my repertoire. And, and with respect to range of motion, I think, um Depending on the severity of the injury, uh, certainly looking at the prone knee bend being a guiding um, a range of motion test, and then for kicking athletes, progressing that to a modified Thomas, um, where they're in hip extension and um, you know starting to stretch the actual knee extensors as well. So I think those two are particularly uh, important. Um, and then with respect to uh, strength or, or the contract contractile properties of of rec fem. Um, I think it's important we have some um, you know, good tests, reliable tests for both the hip flexion and the knee extension component and, uh, and having ways to measure um, you know, peak force, uh, but also then over time consider whether it's strength endurance or even um, rate of force development are important. So um, simple things, you know, you could just incorporate uh, manual muscle tests of knee extension, hip flexion, um, considering whether you're doing short lever or long lever, depending on how provocative they are, uh, guiding your um, or, or monitoring progress based on whether pain, uh, how much pain they're um, uh, experiencing with the um, movement, as well as how much force it would provide. So, I, I will, in, in the very early stages, incorporate manual muscle tests, um, but then try and be more objective with the use of um, handheld dynamometry. Um, and in the elite setting, I've had access to, uh, say, things like force frames, so externally fixed dynamometers, um, which has been uh, really helpful in um, guiding some of my decisions. So, uh, two particular movements that have been an interest for me are uh, hip flexion um, at 60 and 90 degrees um, and uh, what's called a kicker test. So combine hip flexion and knee extension. Um, and I've used those to help guide some of my decision-making. So, so I guess firstly, stretch, um, uh, uh, so re reproducible stretch um, or range of motion tests. 
uh, and then contraction or strength tests, uh, both of hip flexion and knee extension. Um, and depending on what you have access to, uh, will guide um, what you choose to use. So the handheld dynamometers are far more commonly used in practice uh, now. You mentioned how you uh, test a strength at 60 and 90 degrees hip flexion. Is that done with a patient supine or sitting or... Uh, so with uh, hip flexion, yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, good, good, good question. So typically, um, with the short lever, I'll test that. Oh, you can either test that in supine or seated. I find that um, at ninety degrees, I'll test that in a seated position. Um, yep. I can certainly get it into a, a biomechanically advantageous position to resist uh, their force. Um, but in the early stages, I might it just um, a long lever uh, hip flexion. I might get some uh, early gauge of how provocative that movement is and, and gauge yep. how much force they can exert. Um, probably one other thing I forgot to mention there is, um, you know, just some functional movements to regularly assess and reassess. And probably the big one there is, um, you know, unilateral movements like a, a lunge. Um, yep. So I find that in terms of assessment to to um, diagnose but also track progress uh, you know double leg squat you will often miss particularly those low level um, strains so uh, a lunge particularly in, uh, being interested in the rear leg uh, can really be a, a, a good way to understand or, or pick up those uh, uh, lower uh, severity strains but also guide decision making around return to running and so on where they need to be able to load uh, in that hip extended position so um, so yeah a, a lunge uh, maneuver and, and you know and for higher grade strains just uh, a resumption of a normal gait patterns are really important things to consider as well and just i want to take a little step back um, you mentioned the kicker test uh, also can you explain a little bit about what that is yeah, so uh, yeah, good question. So uh, around the time uh, that we had uh, probably, I think the first um, proximal avulsion at uh, when I was working at Melbourne Victory, where both tendons avulsed uh, from a kicking mechanism, really didn't have any guidance on uh, or any objective guidance on how to um, uh, progress the hip flexor loading and particularly how that relates to uh, kicking. Um, so I was doing some research assisting with um, some colleagues at Australian Catholic University and we looked at um, using the force frame and seeing if there was a, a manoeuvre that or a test that could um, somewhat mimic, um, you know, the, the kicking motion. So we, we managed to, and I'll do a demonstration, uh, I've done a demonstration of that Um uh, at the conference and uh, what, what we're looking at there is in a standing position um, uh, with the load cell in contact with the, the dorsum of the foot, um, the hip in uh, neutral, uh, uh, getting the patient or the athlete to uh, push into the load cell uh, in a position of ball contact um, phase of kicking. And what we've found is, and, and I'll, you'll see with the case study itself, um, that uh, that is a highly reliable, but also um, correlated with improvements in function with respect to uh, kicking. So, um, so yeah, basically a, a test to replicate the, uh, as best possible um, uh, the kicking position and kicking related rec fem force. 
Sounds great. Probably not something that's um, accessible to the standard practitioner, but uh, great for, for research and, uh, and I guess developing uh, protocols for, for returns for these sorts of injuries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think uh, access and, and uh, to such equipment is probably going to become more and more um, possible over, over time. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, it, it's good to have access to some of these uh, tools, but um, but also having some, um, you know, simple uh, uh, room based measures that, uh, that don't need any uh, higher tech equipment is also important. So obviously these injuries will um, vary in severity um, and uh, I guess we need to consider whether to MRI a patient, uh, whether to they need um, surgical intervention. Uh, can you talk about what the classification of injuries are and also uh, what sort of approaches or when you might use a, um, a surgical approach? Yeah, so a yeah, good question. So I think... Um, uh, you know, MRI, when considering imaging, MRI is typically the, the preferred imaging modality for, for these um, uh, rec fam injuries, particularly the ones in proximal in nature. Um, now, when, when is it um, indicated? I think if you're suspecting a proximal tendon injury, so there's been a mechanism of injury that is involved, you know, um, a patient reporting a pop, um, focal tenderness, anterior thigh, um, or significant focal tenderness, stiff leg gait, uh, palpable gap in some cases, and significant reduction in hip flexion, power, and knee extension. I think you're certainly going to be um, exploring um, uh, uh, getting that MRI um, referral. Um, uh, the MRI is better at uh, or imaging or MRI is better at uh, identifying sort of those degloving or bullseye lesions, which can be associated with a longer return to play. Um, so I think, I think basically that the MRI will enable you to better classify the actual uh, location. So whether it is across the, you know, in the myofascia itself, the muscular tennis junction, or uh, it has some tendon involvement, and then better at classifying the actual um, severity at, at that location. And, um, and what I find in some of the research shows is that British Athletics Association classification system is, is quite helpful in, um, in identifying that. But um, when considering um, if surgery is, is indicated or not, um, um, well, well, firstly, for the vast majority, I think it's important to state that for the vast majority of rec fam injuries, um, conservative or non-operative care is, is recommended. Um, yeah. Operative management is only discussed with those high-grade proximal tendon injuries in, in those professional athletes or patients with high functional demands. Okay. Um, uh, Sonary Khatib, um, a, a researcher or a surgeon based in, in Europe, uh, it published a paper which provides a really useful decision tree with respect to um, determining if someone is appropriate for surgery or not with these high grade tendon injuries. And um, basically if there's a proximal avulsion of just one tendon or, or partial tear to the muscular tendon junction, whether you're an amateur athlete or professional athlete, conservative care is, is, is generally recommended. However, if there's a proximal avulsion of two tendons 
or uh, full thickness tear to the musculotendinous junction, and you are a professional athlete, then um, then you know surgical opinion uh, is is warranted. Um, so you know and that that surgical opinion um, uh, may involve considering of uh, primary surgical repair of the valse tendon or excision of the proximal tendon um, remnant by primary uh, tenodesis. Um, what is what some of the research has shown that for these you know high grades so let me be, uh, be clear again uh, you know typically these higher grade proximal avulsions of two tendons um, if for those who don't go down that surgical um, pathway there is uh, some evidence to show that uh, that it is a more highly variable return to play um, potentially reduced functional performance at return and uh, higher recurrence rates. Um, so, um, but yeah, as I said, um, vast majority, uh, just like the hamstring muscle group and others, is going to be a, um, you know, a, a conservative uh, management plan. So for the time that we have left, let's just run through some rehab options. Uh, assume this patient doesn't need or athlete doesn't need surgery. What are the key uh, things to consider in rehab and how do you, I guess, chunk it down? Yeah, um, great question. So um, I think, uh, yeah, first and foremost, I, I really adhere or advocate for that impairment-based model um, with respect to my uh, rehabilitation. Um, I have a key emphasis on not only loading the local tissue, so that rec fem, um, in, uh, so training the hip flexion component, training the knee extension component, um, incorporating hybrid um, movements as tolerated, and providing eccentric stimulus as early as tolerated and as early as possible. Um, within that, and I'll provide some examples, plenty of examples um, in, in the presentation is uh, embedding um, those functional patterns uh, as tolerated. Um, so I, I really adhere to a, a sort of rehabilitation continuum um, that uh, Andrew Lambert, head physio at uh, Hawthorne Football Club, um, has presented is working across five different phases. So uh, in that early phase, uh, early protected loading and movement, progressing to um, strengthening an inner range to outer range where there's more stress on the on the tissue, um, increasing speed of loading and elastic changes, so power rate of force development integration. And, and ultimately that's you know, working across that force velocity curve. And then really importantly with particularly these red fem injuries is uh, appropriate reintegration into training. Um, how have you appropriately um, prepared that athlete for the kicking demands and how have you understood that and I'll, I'll go through all the different um, strategies that I, I incorporate um, prior to return to play um, so you know more specifically and, and yeah, please tell me if uh, if you need me to uh, um, fast train us a bit more but uh, uh, you know phase one you know the early protected loading um, you know, certainly you've got to respect that early um, or initial immobilisation, acute management, but, um, you know, what, what sort of uh, range of motion, you know, whether it's um, uh, trying to, you know, not be too aggressive with the hip extension component, but trying to get back that range of motion through the, um, so some general mobility exercises for the, for the quadricep muscle group, early isometric loading in both knee extension and hip flexion, um, uh, certainly a bit more cautious with the hip flexion component in, in the early phase um, and, and depending on the severity of the presentation. Um, really a big advocate for, you know, 
cross education and cross training in that first phase. Um, really important that we maintain all energy systems um, uh, for these injuries. And then you know, sort of as we start to be able to load that area a little bit more in phase two, um, typically where this these athletes are tolerating those bilateral movements um, more comfortably. So whether it's sort of double leg squats, um, uh, then then adding in elements of um, unilateral loading with some leg extensions that doesn't involve a high amount of uh, hip flexion um, force, um, leg press, um, uh, and then, uh, you know, targeting that hip flexion component as tolerated. So often I might start with some... Um, uh, in crook lying, some isometric hip flexion into um, banded resistance, into um, uh, a cable resisted knee flexion, uh, sorry, hip flexion uh, with a short lever, and then uh, progressing into more and more functional positions like wall marching um, and with resistance. Uh, as I said, I, I'll try to embed eccentric exercises as early as possible. Um, so these might be um, just some manual resisted eccentric um, movements in, in the tolerable range um, in prone. Um, and then moving into sort of as, you know, particularly as we move into phase three, incorporating those reverse Nordics uh, in tolerated range. I think that's a really nice um, uh, high, high load eccentric um, exercise for, for the quadricep muscle group. So Rees, you, you finished the first two phases now. Before you go on to explain phase three, where's the athlete at now? What, what can they typically do or, or not do before you start them in phase three rehabilitation? Yeah, so yeah, good question. So at, at this phase, they're um, uh, they're tolerating um, sort of um, certainly in arranged mid range loads, uh, high loads, quite comfortably. Um, they're, they're they're able to complete a, a lunge or rear lunge uh, pain free. Um, they're certainly walking. They're doing some slow jogging um, pain free as well, and they're starting to uh, build up their speed. Um, certainly. Are getting close to sort of seventy uh, percent or, or thereabouts of their of their um, their normal running speeds. Um, they've been doing some uh, short uh, kicking over small distances, um, uh, predominantly in a soccer coat, in step kicking, uh, and with uh, uh, with respect to. Uh, foot, uh, Aussie rules codes, um, you know, a light ball over very short distances. Um, yeah. But uh, but now we're starting to, in order for them to start hitting, you know, higher speeds of running uh, and specifically, you know, kicking over longer distances, um, they need to uh, be able to load that uh, quadricep muscle group, uh, particularly rec fem, at length and increase the speed of contraction. Okay, so what does um, so, phase three look like in terms of rehab then? Yeah, so typically um, in this phase, I have um, sort of three, sort of three arms to to the sort of strengthening component. Um, so you know, I've already been doing some strengthening for the synergists, so the hip adductors, the the lateral column, um, and the sort of the abdominal um, muscle groups. But uh, now I'm starting to add in some. As I said, heavier loading with um, sort of leg extensions, but particularly now in uh, sort of that stretch position. So in the modified Thomas position, I'm loading uh, Bulgarian split squats. Um, so loading that rear leg um, 
significantly more in preparation for some rate of force development or horse off um, jumps. Um, with respect to reverse Nordics, um, there's working through full available range. Um, and with respect to the targeted hip flexion um, component, um, you know, higher load with the, the cable or, or um, power bands, oh, sorry, uh, cable machine. And, um, and we're starting to incorporate, you know, uh, you know, things like sled accelerations and, and, and hill sprints. So, it's, you know, higher load uh, and higher speed of loading in longer lengths is certainly the emphasis here. Um, and, and then that progresses nicely into uh, really that phase four increased speed of loading and elastic changes. Um, and, um, and really what I, I'm really thinking of here is preparing for kicking demands, um, preparing for running demands, preparing for jumping demands, uh, depending on that sport. Um, so I might be incorporating, um, so got a lot of ideas from various clinicians around, but um, incorporating Swiss ball kickdowns um, in that sort of cocking phase. Um, so single leg reverse bridge drop and catches, um, reverse plank flutters, um, and alongside the skill-based kicking progressions on, on the ground. Um, running demands, so uh, as I said, running drills, so particularly acceleration and deceleration retraining um, and progressive exposure to high-speed uh, running. And then the jumping demands, um, as I said, now that they're loading heavily into that sort of uh, rear forward elevated lunge. Um, you know, you can start incorporating some bounding, bores off jumps, um, squat jumps and so on. So certainly a higher um, uh, speed of loading um, in, in those sort of vulnerable positions. Um, now in the background, the running progressions are, are progressing along. Um, and uh, you're starting to now push uh, closer towards, um, uh, you know, top speed um, with a real big emphasis on the different technique components um, of, of both the acceleration and deceleration. And we know particularly um, with sort of acceleration, um, those first two to three strides, that thrust component, um, the glutes, um, glute max predominantly, and the quadricep muscle group are really important. So spending a lot of time retraining that, um, uh, as well as, um, uh, you know, putting the brakes on. Uh, we know that's a prerequisite for a, yeah. a changing direction. And, um, you know, that's a common mechanism. So really, really using those quads to, as brakes um, and, uh, you know, spending a lot of time on those progressions. So I think we're up to uh, the final phase now, phase five. I'm assuming this is a return to, to play? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so phase five is uh, five and six, I guess, um, you know, incorporate reintegration into training and, and then return, subsequent return to play. Um, probably the, the, just before I touch on that, um, and, and a lot of the, the different emphasis of, of the program are embedded throughout all stages. Um, and one of the things to consider is that is those kicking progressions. Um, I think if you are working with a kicking athlete, it's really important that you um, have some level of understanding of what a normal match load and, and or training load is for that player and their position. Um, and, uh, you know, there is some good research out there for different sports as to, um, you know, the, the 
particularly the distance-based categorization. So, you know, for example, in the case study, I talk about, you know, central um, defender and, um, uh, and, you know, what are the different, um, you know, how, how many exposures to short kicking, middle distance or long distance kicking do they have in a match in a training session? and progressively building them up to that over the course of the rehabilitation and, and generally speaking you know um you know preparing them for worst case scenario so you know uh, a standard deviation above um sort of that um uh, sort of mean or, or average amount um or volume of kicking and typically will progress across um size of the ball distance and, and amount of repetitions and we'll talk about how you you manage that um, each of those variables um, with a return to kick process um, so yeah so yeah now they're progressing to full um, uh, full training and full uh, and, and play um, generally speaking like any uh, graded return to play program um, you know aspects of part training, uh, full training in consideration of consecutive or non-consecutive training sessions is important. Are they hitting, you know, if you have access to uh, GPS, are they hitting, um, you know, training and match intensities, um, particularly around uh, high-speed running, accelerations, decelerations, and, and total volume. Um, and, and for me, guiding some of those decisions um, around return to play is obviously, you know, sim simple objective tests. We often use the force frame, so uh, utilizing that kicker test. Um, you know, hip flexion uh, at 90 degrees, hip adduction, um, obviously important muscle group uh, for particularly that in-step kick. Um, obviously, we're quite lucky to have access to osteokinetic um, dynamometry for knee extension, but there's lots of tools out there that you can use. Um, um, for for dynamometers uh, in the clinic, uh, hop testing we we utilised, um, and uh, and then the, the general sort of change of direction and, and GPS metrics, as well as uh, a full two week return to uh, to well depending on the, the time away from uh, from training and playing, um, you know ensuring that they they normalise that uh, that training load before they're playing. Um, yeah. So. So they're, they're probably the, the key key features, which I'll be able to uh, sort of demonstrate um, a, a little bit more clearly uh, in the actual workshop. So, look, I think you've been extremely thorough with what you've gone through there, but you did mention something right at the very beginning of the podcast, how these injuries are more common in the preseason than during the season. If you had to give one bit of advice to a um, the coaching staff or, or the athletes to prevent these kind of injuries over the um uh or during the preseason. what would what do you think is the most important thing that an athlete needs to consider there yeah the oh, by far and away i would say the easiest would be just to uh to maintain some level of uh, kicking load during yeah. the off season um so for sure uh like you know i, I liken it to uh uh, lack of exposure to high-speed running and hamstring strain injury risk. I, I think that kicking in rec fems is the same. So yes, of course, have you know your, your time away, but have a have some sort of uh, graded return prior to preseason starting. Don't don't um, commence your loading at the start of preseason because um, you know it's not too common that coaches are going to allow for a slow return. Um, so uh, really ensure that your kicking loads are high and and often. 
with that knowledge, you know, athletes, uh, um, patients are very happy to uh, just have a, a kick around with friends and and, and uh, colleagues. So that would be that would be number one. Uh, yeah. Keep some kicking loading over the off season, um, and then of course you can, you know, for those who are at high risk, you can address modifiable risk factors like hip flexor and quad mobility, uh, hip hip flexion strengthening um, in outer range and, and torso strengthening, of course. But kicking loads number one. Fantastic. Uh, Reese. thank you so much for your time uh, today. It's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, lots of great information and uh, you obviously know the, the subject uh, back to front. So uh, appreciate uh, your time on the ACA podcast today. No problem at all, Anthony. And, and thank you very much for your time. So for those of you out there who are ACE Sports members, remember you can get access to a lot of this information uh, in the video format through the various webinars uh, online. That's part of your ACE membership. So uh, do go onto the ACA website and check out what's available there. Uh, but that's it for me for now. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <laughs>